Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today I'm talking to the historian Richard Watmore and the political theorist Leah Ippi about Richard's new book, End of Enlightenment. What was the Enlightenment? Why were so many hopes invested in it in the 18th century? And why, by the end of the 18th century, had so many of those hopes come to nothing? Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, You can subscribe, get new issues and access to the LRB's peerless archive by just going to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at a special rate by going to lrb.me slash ppf. Richard, one way to try and define the Enlightenment is to say what it was against. And it was against many things, but you offer two big categories, which are really interesting, partly because it's a very interesting question how they go together. So one thing the Enlightenment was against was superstition, which I take to mean false belief. We can talk about the different kinds of false belief. The other one that you offer is enthusiasm, which might be more surprising for contemporary readers, given we tend to think of enthusiasm as a good thing. You know, people are told, show some enthusiasm, that's meant to be a positive. It was a pejorative term. um, And it meant not what you believe, but how you believed it. And it shaded into fanaticism. So just say a little bit about superstition and enthusiasm. How did they go together? And for early Enlightenment thinkers, let's take Hume as an example. Which was the bigger threat? Was it people believing rubbish? Or was it people maybe believing things that were even conceivably true, but in a mad fanatical way? So I think one way of thinking about the early modern mind is to say that if you're in the Protestant world, superstition is Catholicism. And enthusiasm descending into fanaticism is associated with the history of Protestantism, you know, radical forms of reformation. And I think that Hume believes that enlightenment in the sense of battling forms of religious warfare had been achieved. You know, there were a lot of reasons to be proud that the wars of religion, they weren't entirely a thing of the past, but In a sense, there are two species of wars of religion, and one is the spreading of false belief, as you've said, and the other is excessively enthusiastic belief turning fanatic in the history of Protestantism. Now, obviously, from an alternative perspective, one person's nonsense is another person's faith or reason. And from the Catholic world, of course figures such as Bosway, it's the case that it's Protestantism that's false belief. It just doesn't fit with everything that we know about God. And I think on the Catholic side, superstition and then enthusiasm and fanaticism are all tied together. For Hume, being the skeptic that he was, there's history on both sides and there's congratulations on both sides because both Britain and France at the time, the states he's most interested in, seem to have enjoyed victories over superstition, enthusiasm and fanaticism, and that's enlightenment. Leo, which one do you think is the is the bigger threat to, let's call them, early 18th century enlightenment values? Because as Richard says, obviously, one person's superstition is another person's faith. You might say the thing that everyone conceivably could agree on 
is that there is a form of fanaticism. There's at least a way of holding belief, regardless of what that belief is, which is a threat to peace. Obviously, again, it slightly depends which side of the divide you're on. But it's at least possible that the real enemy here is enthusiasm. I don't agree with that, in part because I think of enthusiasm as connected to a more secular attitude and connected to, in a way, this original Enlightenment project, which is the discovery of reason and of the autonomy of thought. And that comes to some extent with this effort to distinguish between what is within the reach of reason and what is outside the reach of reason. And I think of fanaticism as trying to overstep those boundaries. It's an attitude that we connect to trying to suggest that things that aren't true are true, or to, there, there is a sense in which you can't really distinguish what is a justified, what is a warranted belief from an unwarranted one with fanaticism. Whereas with enthusiasm, as I understand it, it's more as though the distinction is able to be made between what counts as reasonable and unreasonable. And then it's more about the attitude that accompanies reason and then the danger that this attitude itself becomes extreme in some ways and also prone to error. But I think the foundations of these two attitudes are different. And in fact, you know, one of the authors that I'm interested in, which is Kant, actually makes exactly this distinction between fanaticism as connected to something that oversteps the boundaries of sensibility and enthusiasm as an attitude that goes with moral thinking and isn't always as critical as some of the authors that Richard discusses in his book. And we maybe we, we can carry on talking about that later if you want. So, so just to be clear, is it possible on this account then to be a kind of enthusiast for the Enlightenment? Well, this is what some of the Enlightenment thinkers that I'm interested in thought. So I think that when I was reading Richard's book, what I was really interested in was, in fact, that, that he tells a story about enthusiasm that is much more skeptical than the one that I am more familiar with, which is that, in fact, enthusiasm isn't necessarily always something to be skeptical about. It's only uh, something to be skeptical about when it becomes the grounds of decision making and the grounds of moral action. But if it's just an attitude that accompanies our moral disposition, then it's necessary to acting in a way and to being motivated to acting. I suppose I have a problem with the Enlightenment project because I'm really interested in ideas in action. And we talk about reason and we talk about, you know, moral personas. And when we look at the philosophers in their lives you know, even somebody like Kant, uncertain about the French Revolution, changing his mind. When you look at the ideas in action, which is what I've tried to do in Hume's case, then they're looking at concrete cases. And I like them looking at concrete cases. So they're able to say, for example, that there are different strategies for defeating religious war. And the reason that I'm so interested in religious war is because I think that in early modern times, the great catastrophe, which generations remembered, I think it's a, for us, it's akin to generations that recall the effects of the Second World War. And the people looked back, their families had experienced the consequences of religious fanaticism. And somebody saying that they've got to kill another person because God told them to do it, which is obviously the very definition of fanaticism. You know, God is telling you to do something. So for me, there are different forms of enlightenment, the different strategies to stop wars of religion from breaking out. And that means that free states, the history of free states becomes very significant 
because the easiest way in some ways for of establishing enlightenment is autocracy you know if you control everybody's behavior then they're not going to descend into religious warfare because they're not allowed to because the state or the community controls them and that's actually the reason why i focus on britain and france because they see themselves as free states obviously only france with the french revolution but also the free states in europe are all in decline you know the republicanism is becoming a dead doctrine it's it's something that isn't associated with successful states anymore and that means the history of liberty and fanaticism and i th and i think that lay is right in the sense that hume doesn't think you can get rid of enthusiasm you know you 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 need it and actually what he's most worried about is you seem to need it more in free states and a good dose of enthusiasm for liberty let's face it you know hume acknowledges it the role of the reformation in establishing liberty in britain is something that he says cannot be denied and and it's something that's that's venerated by all parties it's something that you have to focus on but it also means that free states are fragile because that liberty itself can turn fanatic when you say to another person actually i'm going to have to kill you because it's the only thing that will make me free and allow my free state to survive so i think the relationship between liberty and fanaticism is is something that arises because of this enlightenment history and because of the particular focus on free states and uh, and fanaticism which is the one of the ways that fanaticism breaks out again excessive enthusiasm turning fanatic and even becoming a superstitious belief in liberty so i think ultimately they're all tied together as religious politics are secularized in the sense of forms of fanaticism breaking out in secular guise which i think is obviously for me the story of the end of enlightenment and seeing the french revolution as a religious war as a form of protestantism even because the republicans create their community their republican community and then it divides then it divides then it divides it's exactly the history of fanatic protestantism so it looks as if france the ultimate catholic country itself turned protestant during the french revolution which obviously makes it such a fascinating story so i i suppose there's two ways of telling this story one is of the enlightenment turning against itself which is i think the story that richard wants to tell and the other one is of the enlightenment never having been accomplished and i suspect which of these two stories is we think is more plausible depends on how we think about the politics of the enlightenment and the relationship between moral principles on which the enlightenment was founded and the kinds of political institutions that it generated there was a point with which i think i disagreed with richard when he says you know the the best way to realize enlightenment is with enlightenment despotism which is obviously in some ways the historical form that it took but many of the authors were aware that this wasn't the perfect realization because if we're thinking about reason and autonomy and somehow creating this foundation for institutions that is just grounded on reason then it seems to me that authority whether it's the authority of the state or of the church is just as problematic and this is something that the german enlightenment was particularly wary of and so when they were criticizing authority they were criticizing both the authority of the enlightened despots however good they were i mean you know in prussia there were 
phases in which the state was relatively benign vis-a-vis philosophers and then the authority of the church as well. But they were all saying, look, there is a sense in which the political institutions that we need are not ones that can be grounded on enlightenment, on benevolent despots or on authoritarian forms. And so we need to open up society. So there is a sense in which the question is then to what extent was this project really realized and to what extent it was constrained both by the market and by the state and then the relationship between the state and the market, which is where I think uh, Richard's book is really interesting in showing the constraints that this combination of the state and the market posed to this project. But of course, one might say, well, yeah, that's because it took that form that it was never really able to be realized, not because it turned against itself or not because there was something intrinsically problematic about the principles. It's just that these kinds of institutions that replaced the authority of the church were not the right ones. And Richard, just to pick up on that, because as you say, you do focus a lot on Britain. And let's take Hume as an example here, the, the great Scottish philosopher who you tell the arc of his life, which in some way maps the arc of the Enlightenment. That is early enthusiasm, if that's the right word for it, for Enlightenment values, but also, as you said, some real confidence that the victories, many of them had been won. And I was really struck by one of his assumptions about fanaticism is that it burns itself out. You know, it has a kind of natural arc to it. And actually, what's useful about particularly Protestant fanaticism is that it really shakes things up and it tears things down. You know, it breaks you out of the shell in which you're trapped, the shell of superstition. But then the fanaticism burns itself out because human beings can't sustain that level of enthusiasm. And then you get something more settled, more measured, and more stable. But his turn to pessimism was not because religion came back. His turn to pessimism, for some of the reasons Leia said, was because of the institutional form then this settling down took, and particularly the way it then intersected with imperial mercantile finance. And and what that means is Britain was acquiring an empire. It saw the world in relatively zero-sum terms. You had to conquer the bits of the world that you were going to use to sustain this project. And what I read from your account was the problem there is it doesn't burn itself out. We've moved outside of a kind of natural span of human enthusiasms that run out of steam into a world of artificial political and economic entities, the East India Company. It's not a, East India Company is not really a vehicle of enthusiasm. It's a vehicle of profit and oppression and coercion. And it has its own imperatives, which aren't going to burn themselves out. And I mean, maybe I've read it wrong, but I felt that Hume started to feel we were moving into a world in which the natural lifespan of these things had been replaced by the artificial lifespan of economic and political entities that did not know when to stop. And that was when enlightenment starts to lose control of itself because it's no longer a human project in a way. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think it is. I think that the exam- the reason why Hume's so optimistic is actually because of Louis the Fourteenth. Because if you want to see superstition and fanaticism defeated, it's in the history of his reign and its failure, the failure of creation of a universal monarchy on mainland Europe. And Hume th- saw that history, he saw the fanaticism, obviously the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and the persecution of the Huguenots. And the fact that Louis XIV looks as if he's re-establishing counter-reformation and then fails, that's enlightenment in practice. You know, the fact that 
Britain and France seem to be coming together. And obviously the term that he uses, civilised monarchies, governments of laws rather than men. And in a sense, the aspiration to be governed by laws rather than men is an anti-politics. You know, you get rid of all the selfishness, you get rid of all the self-interestedness. Obviously later, uh, people call it Machiavellianism. And Hume thinks that's why he's so optimistic in addition to the story of the Protestants, the Protestant story, so the Catholics have done their bit, the Protestant side of the story really is to see Quakers, who Hume says were fanatic, but he also says Confucians. You know, he's looking, he's looking globally at relig what he sees as religious movements that have gone through a storm and then it's the calm after the storm. And, and having gone through it, as you say, the storm's shaken things up. And then it's, a, it's, it's not just a calm. It's a very, it's a positive situation where you may be able, you know, at his most optimistic, what does he say? He says, Britain and France will come together. And obviously the Francophile Hume, who loves nothing better than French culture and wine and food and conversation, there's nothing better than that. And so he even thinks in a sense, because he always worries about, you know, the excess of liberty, that the French coming together with the British, it might discipline British culture and make it much healthier, much less xenophobic. You know, Hume hates the castigation of, of the French and all the, the easy political gains through, through bigotry and xenophobia. So I think... The fact that the Seven Years' War, and he blames Chatham, obviously Pitt the Elder in particular, for relying on or stoking popular xenophobic politics, hatred of the French. And he links that together with this mercantile system that obviously his great friend Smith gives the greatest description of in The Wealth of Nations which is intended as an attack on the British Empire and an indictment of the way that the British Empire is, has been established, then he thinks that the mercantile system is deadly because it fosters fanatic forms of liberty. It breaks up states, as it's doing in North America. Obviously, that's the contemporary. They're living through that. And obviously, that as a consequence of the, of the Seven Years' War the British need more revenues. They're going to have to tax the colonists. They rebel. That's for Hume. It's a completely natural process, but it's caused by this mercantile system, the need to cover your costs to pay for the expense of warfare. And military technology is becoming ever more expensive. Therefore, you need the mercantile system to generate commerce, the turn to new markets. It means there's a turn to empire, which he also sees. And the last thing, I suppose, the last thing that he's devastated about, which comes back to the notion of superstition, is the loss of a sense of a public good. And I think if Leia defines, if, if reason means a public good, a, a good for humanity as a whole and for, the, and for the members of an individual nation, then I can see that. That's something that Hume thinks, you know, being a supporter of the science of the statesman or legislator, the goal is ultimately to define the common good for everybody that everybody can agree on. And Hume thinks it's utterly collapsed in the context of these mercantile politics. One, one question I had, Richard, uh, while I was reading, was that I understood these authors all to be very aware of the limits of mercantilism. And so this model of commerce that is based on exchange and trade, 
But ultimately, the right to commerce is grounded on something that is prior and philosophically more fundamental, which is property. So if you have a right to property, then you have a right to then sell, alienate, exchange, trade. And it seemed to me that they're very critical of the model of exchange and trade and so of commerce, but that they're not as aware of the fact that this ill arises from a more fundamental ill, which is, well, who defines what is property, how property is justified, where do we get the right to property, which is something that I always feel when I read this uh, English-Scottish Enlightenment is a tension in their thinking, because as I say, they're aware of the consequences, but there's not a lot of thinking that goes into what is the foundation of all this, and is there an alternative way of thinking about property and the relationship between the individual and the collective when it comes to property? I mean, I suppose like reason, I think everything's really messy in practice. And what I try and look for is what examples are they using to illustrate what they're saying. And I think there's a vision of a, of a natural economy. There's a vision of a natural progress of opulence. Obviously, that's also something that Smith and, and, uh, is obsessed with. And his friends, the physiocrats, think that it's the history of France, you know, and that Britain is an entirely unnatural polity, which ultimately does violate property rights. You know, the way the physiocrats describe the behavior of, of British merchants, they're barbarians. They're just, uh, they'll do anything for lucre. And you can't trust them. That means ultimately they don't respect property. They don't respect anything. They're just in it for self-reward, and uh, and the consequences are disastrous. And and that's why there's a focus on this expectation that Britain can't survive. Because, in a sense, how could a state with such a corrupt economy, which is inventing, as as David said, these artificial organisations that are neither state, they're linked to the state, but they don't. Re they have a the East India Company it has a very uncertain identity. Doesn't really know what it is. It's acquiring an empire. It's devastating native populations. It's accused of causing famine and you know millions of deaths uh, in seventeen seventy. So it's pretty devastating the consequences of it. So the French think it can't last, and ultimately, nor does Hume probably nor does Smith, although Smith always has a faith in in change, you know, purposive change that I think Hume's lost by the time of his death. Certainly Shelburne and Price and people like that, they all think the same. But outside, you know, across Europe, people like Voltaire, the yet former Anglophiles, think that Britain's just a pirate state, proves it's a pirate state during the Seven Years' War. He's lost all faith in it. Pretty much everybody thinks like that. They're very depressed about the future, partly because the debt's enormous. Obviously, they don't believe that states can sustain themselves with, with such enormous levels of debt. There has to be an end point because of the laws of, of property. But it seems that the mercantile system doesn't have to adhere to that, that kind of logic. It just doesn't. I mean, obviously, the survival of Britain, in a sense, in a sense shows that. That's the great shock. That's why I, I draw such a big distinction between the 18th century and the 19th century. Because the thing that nobody would have predicted would have been the survival of Britain as a free state. And it can do it because it's supremely good at warfare. 
it is one of the things that really stands out in your account, which is as these Enlightenment thinkers move to a more pessimistic framework, a lot of the focus on that of their pessimism is that Britain will collapse. And again, I think there is a contrast here between that version of change, including political change, which is, say, a religious movement takes hold, shakes things up, and then you get a settling afterwards. They can't reconstruct that in the case of Britain. So Britain is not a religious movement, it's a pirate state. They find it hard to think about what form the collapse will take, but it's some of it's pretty apocalyptic, right? This thing is going to, it's not going to burn itself out. One, it's going to be bankruptcy, and bankruptcy on that scale just sort of freaks them out, right? They can't wrap their head around it. In the same way, to be honest, I think people thinking about the US now, or whatever, you know, massively indebted states, it's really hard to think about the thing that comes after. You know, we're almost like, well, we just can't. It's, it's an impossibility. And yet it also felt like an inevitability. And you know, good news for the British state was bad news. You know, winning wars meant acquiring more debt. Uh, there, there wasn't a way out. And yet they were wrong. I mean, it's it's such an extraordinary story. These these incredibly, in their way, far-sighted and politically acute philosophers, economists, thinkers, thought that Britain was doomed. And so one of my questions is, if you take the French Revolution out of the story, <laughs> might they have been right? I mean, you know, everything changes with the French Revolution. You had in the period from the end of the Seven Years' War up to the French Revolution, what looked like British instability and relative French stability, and then bang, it's France that goes bankrupt. It's the French system that collapses, and the British state, you know, its its ability to fight war is its salvation. Is there a counterfactual here? Can we do, is it possible? It may be too big a counterfactual. Can you do a counterfactual where you don't have the French Revolution? Does the British state then, potentially, it does collapse? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. and um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question. It's a big question. It's a big question. <laughs> And I think the interesting thing is, as you've said, people think Britain shouldn't be a model for anybody. And the Abbe Sayers, when he's plotting the French Revolution, he doesn't look at Britain. You know, he doesn't, there's nothing in the British example that he's going to follow. You know, commentators who are friends of his think that's the great mistake, that he doesn't think there's any lessons from Britain. Because actually, Republicans, the only people who are positive about Britain are the Republicans in their small states who know that they're endangered species, they think that the republics are doomed, and therefore they're looking at histories of liberty that are able to sustain themselves. And even in the, the dire circumstances of the, the British polity in the, in the 1770s, 1780s, where people think they're reliving the 1630s and 1640s, you know, they really do anticipate the descent into civil war. French thought, I think, is is so imaginative in the 18th century because they think it's totally unnatural that Britain has risen. And the French Revolution actually is a response. It's creating an alternative form of liberty to the British. And the extraordinary thing is if you imagine the French Revolution not to have existed, then you don't have the history of socialism. You don't have the history of the attempt to rewrite the French Revolution and put it right and not descend into terror which I think is ultimately the history of socialism. It's all of the movements that you get in the, in the early 19th century, which ultimately say, how on earth has Britain maintained itself? It cannot be a model. We can't be Madame de Staël's or Benjamin Constant saying, we've been radical Republicans. We've now had the really depressing realisation that Britain is the best model of liberty in town. You don't want to accept that. You have to imagine a Republican community that genuinely works 
hence socialism, etc. And I think that would be the that would be the the great consequence. Whether Britain would have declined, what would have happened to Britain? I mean, in a sense, I, I think you might have had a new enlightenment. You know, if you say if you see somebody like Burke getting closer to the court, obviously being unbelievably optimistic about the future with the reflect reflections on the revolution in France, because he says you can't create a state without monarchy, aristocracy and church. So the French are doomed. So they're just weakening themselves. That means Britain doesn't have to spend so much money on military technology. The future is going to be pretty positive. There's going to be far less war. So I think the British might have survived anyway, because the thing about debt is you can always public credit you can always get your kids to pay it. And I think that's the that's the eternal disaster of public credit is you can pass it on to future generations. If you're a strong state, I think, if you're not a strong state, then someone will come knocking on your door at some point and asking you to pay your debt. But I wanted to say something, maybe not so much to speculate about the counterfactual, but maybe to venture a hypothesis on where these heroes of the Enlightenment might have gone wrong in this idea that commerce and war were fundamentally incompatible, because as we see, as you pointed out, David, now they're ultimately eminently compatible. In fact, they seem to require each other. And that's why the world's most indebted state is also the one with the greatest military, because they need that military to be able to continue to indebt themselves without having anyone else who can then knock on their door and ask for their uh, money back. And I think that's perhaps where, uh, as I say, where these Enlightenment authors went wrong, because that is a disposition that is fundamentally incompatible with reason and with Enlightenment, this idea that you can be constantly aggressive and you can think that war and fighting and killing people is a way to sustain yourself. That's, that's not a disposition that I think would have been intelligible to them. But politically, it is one that makes sense and indeed is the path that seems to have been pursued then by all these states who, the more indebted they were, the way to get out of there was to have a stronger and heavier military. And indeed, historically, then we see the states that develop and continue on this trajectory are the ones that develop the kind of largest military capacity precisely as a way of not being held accountable ultimately for their for their debts. And so that, I think, then defeats this Enlightenment idea that commerce and war were politically incompatible. I mean, morally, they seem to be incompatible because one requires peaceful dispositions and the other requires annihilation. But politically, they have supported each other historically for this reason. When you read, say, Hume, there is a sense in which he's overthinking it. You know, there, there's a logic that tells them that Britain can't survive. And, and I do want to touch, maybe we'll come on to it in a bit, to the contemporary parallels, because people do talk about the contemporary United States in these terms too. As it were, thinking with your head, you can see this is unsustainable. There are many political situations which can't continue, but they do continue. And the reason they continue is they don't follow the logic of reason or indeed the logic of anything else, economic, mathematical models, whatever it is. They have their own logic. I don't think you have to be a hyper-realist to think that politics sometimes has its own logic. And the late 18th century feels like quite a good example of that. Plus, of course, there are these extraordinary contingencies that no one can foresee. And the French Revolution that both sometimes feels like it was inevitable is also an extraordinary contingency. And it produces a highly contingent politics. You know, with hindsight, we know how it, how it burnt itself out. But my God, if you were living through the age of Napoleon, 
you know, everything was up for grabs, right? You know, all bets were off in a sense. And I, Richard, I think your book does a brilliant job of reconstructing the uncertainty, actually, which it, you know, hindsight allows us to wash it away. But yeah, to live through that period, you past a certain point, you couldn't know. And also, I was really struck on your account that for some people, Napoleon is therefore reassuring because they start to feel, oh, some logic has reasserted itself here. We thought this is how it in the end has to go. The fact he starts to behave in a way that is recognizable from the past. You know, he starts to make his brother king of here, you know, and his cousins putting them on thrones and reconstructing a kind of version of monarchy and then empire and so on. In times of real uncertainty, people are reassured by, even if it's not good news, at least it's familiar news. And Napoleon had that effect in a way. It allowed people to fall back on old certainties, depressing as they were. Yes, I think revolution as a political tactic, it, for Republicans, it's a step into the unknown and therefore it's likely to foster forms of fanaticism. And obviously, historically, I've worked on the Genevans and they they think that they're Republicans and they think they're the ultimate enemies of the French Revolution because they think it's a, a republic established by revolution means that you're establishing a church and it means it's going to split and divide and split and divide because obviously they're, they're Calvinists as well and they, they know all about the history of churches. And they also worry about this excessive liberty. And I think that coming back to the counterfactual Obviously, when you really hate something, you tend to become it in part. And I think the British hated the French Revolution so much that there are elements of the Republican fanaticism that becomes part of British politics that Pitt himself fosters because he knows that that's how to, the French have shown, it's how to unite a country through xenophobia and through a passion, a superstitious notions of liberty and the consequences of liberty that that is very effective, especially in conditions where you don't have monarchy, church and aristocracy all, all working together. And coming back just very quickly to, to the example of Burke, who I always feel very sorry for dying in, in 1797 because he dies really depressed. He's just seen the, the Royal Navy mutinies at, at Spithead and the Nore. And he thinks that potentially it's the Royal Navy that will carry Bonaparte's invasion fleet across the Channel. And yet, if he'd lived, he would have seen Bonaparte show that the French Revolution is another history of democracy that ends up, you know, popular rebellion, turns disordered, becomes fanatic, suddenly has faith in usually a military figure, a Republican general that poses as a patriot and then turns himself into an emperor. And so I think that it's in that sense that, that Burke, if he'd lasted, would have been happy. But then, you know, people who become Burkeans like James McIntosh, the thing that they can't forgive Burke, in which he justifies in his letters on a regicide piece, you know, his final works, is that Burke says Britain just needs to empty the treasury to fund the autocracies, you know, fund Prussia, Austria and the Russians to fight the French because the French are so bad. And for Mackintosh, I think it's an irony that free states, the two free states on earth that are militarily supreme, France and Britain, end up going to war, and they fund the autocracies to fight for them. So ultimately, Burke's justifying autocrats, and that's the thing that people like James Mackintosh, kind of, you know, what we'd call a liberal, 
uh, can't forgive. And that's, you know, that's a significant part of the story, again, that Britain becomes so wealthy that it can, it can fund autocrats who are willing to fight for it, and it likes doing it. And Leah, how does that then look from Germany? I mean, how does that look from inside the head of Immanuel Kant when he sees Britain and France engaged in this? Well, he also, Kant also doesn't like Burke, doesn't get to see the empire, so the French Republic turning into empire. But what's very interesting is that the argument on enthusiasm is exactly the opposite of Burke. So Burke uses this case of enthusiasm to warn his fellow citizens and, uh, against the revolution, the French Revolution, and to show the, the tragedy of the French Revolution. And Kant actually uses the concept of enthusiasm to talk exactly about how the French Revolution is a proof of moral progress in history. He talks about this idea that at one point he has an essay in which he discusses this question, is there moral progress, is there a sign of moral progress in the world that we know in the empirical world? And he says that the sign of moral progress is the enthusiasm that the French Revolution generated on the spectators who were watching this very brave people fight for their rights and for a system of government that was ultimately incompatible with war. Again, in line of this argument about the importance of perpetual peace and cosmopolitanism and some of the things that Richard also touches in his book. But it's very interesting that for him, enthusiasm is a moral sentiment. And it's the kind of feeling that is generated when reason acts and when people act in accordance with reason, you get enthusiasm. And he uses this example, because it's an empirical disposition, it's a feeling, he uses the example of this feeling to show, look, the fact that there is enthusiasm, even on the people who are not French, who are not participating in the event, who are just watching this from the, from the side as the Germans were, is the sign that the world is moving towards something better. And so in a way, it's exactly the opposite. And I did wonder when I was reading Richard's book, to what extent the story of pessimism about the Enlightenment was actually very much more of a sort of English-Scottish story. And seen from Germany, it's different. It's more optimistic. And perhaps it's more optimistic because I think the Germans were in some ways better at putting the finger at where the problem really was, which was the limitations of commercial society rather than on poli of political institutions. You know, David, when you were saying earlier, politics has its own logic, the Germans would have said, well, it's the markets that have their own logic. And the problem is that politics is not being able to control that logic and to tame it. And we haven't done enough politically. But it's not that, you, that there, there is an alternative logic of politics and there is a more enlightened logic that is potentially available to us. It's just that it's very hard politically as well to, to show why that is the case, precisely because sometimes people are being held back by this idea that it's institutions, that it's political institutions that are to blame, when in fact political institutions aren't able to control markets as they should. Can I say that I think actually Germany goes through an end of enlightenment as well? And you can see it with Fichte with the ideas of the closed commercial state. And it's actually the closed commercial state, which is an idea that perhaps there's an alternative to this British mercantile system. And I think ultimately the Zolverein, there are lots of mechanisms for avoiding mercantile systems. And I think that becomes the focus of so much liberal thought and actually autocratic reform monarchist thought in the in the new century because you want you know you like aspects of britain and you like aspects of the liberty because it's proved itself to be stable but you don't want the mercantile system 
and there is a positive aspect to the the British Enlightenment because I'm I don't want to just be the ultimate. Have written a book just about doom and gloom, and the the positive element is Scotland, because there's a real turn to Scotland right across Europe because Scotland's the example of the the small state that united with a big state which kept its its law, it kept its religious establishment, and my goodness, it kept its culture. So the process, it seems to be the case that Britain can be terrible to some states, you know, Bengal, Ireland is obviously the great counterexample, and the Union is an attempt to turn Ireland into Scotland, which fails. Obviously, they won't give, George III won't agree to Catholic emancipation. So there's a positive element. And the positive element is that if you're moving to a world of large states and that small states are endangered species and then ultimately become dodos, then what do the small states do? They have to seek a model. And that's why the Genevans go to the Congress of Vienna and they say, we'd like to be Scots because we're in an independent republic and we now want to be part of a Republican confederation, but we want to keep our, our laws, identity and religious establishment. And actually, I think across the what was the Holy Roman Empire, there's a lot of interest in that aspect of the British model, which seems to have been able to maintain a version of enlightenment in that the British, the English didn't destroy Scottish culture, laws or and the economy. Obviously, the universities are, are flying uh, for Protestants in the in the late 18th centuries where you send your your sons if you're a Protestant, the Scottish universities. So there's a genuine sense of a Scottish Enlightenment. I don't want to ignore that, but I think it's to do with small states, the history of small states and this transition of the world, which, let's face it, the Germans are, are fascinated by because they, have, they, they live in, so many of them live in small communities and they're worried about small states as much as anybody. Because I think I agree with Richard that there is a part of the German culture that does go through an end of enlightenment. And I think that culminates in the romantic movement and the romantic tradition and romanticism. But there's a part of it that I think survives and continues and goes into the socialist tradition. And I think it starts actually with an engagement with Fichte, with the Fichte of the closed commercial state, because these German early German socialists realized that actually... Although Fichte was right to say that to preserve peace, you need to somehow engage with commercial society and the difficulties of commercial society, he was wrong to think that the answer was the one that Fichte gave, which we would call today just deglobalize and to isolate the state, because ultimately you couldn't isolate the republic from these global international market phenomena. So you needed to have another form of enlightened thinking, which was cosmopolitan thinking, but had to take an anti-capitalist dimension. And that's ultimately, I think, the socialist project. And that's where I see the continuation between the enlightenment project and the socialist project. And then where you see that the tensions and the contrasts are in the opposition from the romantics and the romantic movement, which then continues into the kind of nihilistic uh, postmodern. We, we can continue the, the conversation, bring it into our day. But I think these are the sort of two trajectories. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. So to finish, I want to ask both of you about the United States of America, because we haven't really touched on that in what we've been discussing here, but there was another revolution at the end of the 18th century. And and there is a way of saying that you can see some enlightenment optimism crossing the Atlantic. So that's a, that's a revolution that doesn't descend into enthusiastic fanaticism, or at least not on the French scale. It creates a constitution that for some people does become a model of a certain ki- new kind of liberal order. It's not the place that small states are going to look to because it doesn't fit that kind of model and it doesn't have the culture. It's not like Scotland, but it's an interesting experiment. And you know, Burke obviously has a very different view of the American and the French revolutions. And yet, Richard, reading your book, there are so many echoes in the way people talked about Britain at the end of the 18th century and the way people talk about America now, not just debt, but also the politics of the United States. We're, we're speaking on the you know, imminent Iowa caucuses. I've just been watching that video. I don't know if you've seen it. And God created Trump. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting 18th century document. The enthusiasms in American politics in the pejorative sense, you know, the, in a way, if I'm allowed to say this, the madness of it, but also what you describe, Richard, which is the way in which any movement is capable of demonizing its enemies if it gets into the wrong mindset. So at the end of the 18th century, America looks potentially at least like an alternative. And also Britain lost that war, right? So this is also part of the illustration of the fact that Britain is in some kind of terminal funk. And yet now... The United States looks like another version of the late 18th century British story, and and Britain survived. America will probably survive too. But my God, there's a lot of superstition and enthusiasm running through American politics that those late 18th century hopes do not seem to have come to fulfillment, though we are two and a bit centuries on. I mean, America then, America now, one looks like the opposite to the British story, and now it looks like another version of the British story. Yes, I think that the contrasts are the ones that obviously the 18th century mind would draw. You know, you go to America, if you're so upset about Europe, that that's where you're going to have some form of liberty. But it's also the place where people like Shelburne, you know, and he'd been he'd been in office in the 1760s, and the thing that really upset him was the treatment of merchants in America, their treatment of the of the indigenous peoples, because he thought they were rapacious, even more rapacious than the worst... British merchants, I mean, he wouldn't have said, obviously, he experiences India in the following decade. So he would have said there's a direct parallel. It's one of the things he tries to stop. So he thinks the that the Americans lust for profit and their obsession, their, let's say, commercial fanaticism is marked even in those early times. But America, you know, having so much land, but then itself becoming a mercantile system, you know, does it become a mercantile system with the Louisiana Purchase? And is the great irony that the anti-federalist Thomas Jefferson actually expanded the United States, you know, doubled its size? Is that the point at which it descends into a mercantile system? It it certainly becomes a mercantile system in the 19th century. And you can say that there's a there's a kind of counter there's a, there's an attempt to restore a version of enlightenment in the in the antitrust acts and in a sense 
Adams thought the best option for the United States was to become very like Britain early on. And that's why Thomas Paine is so depressed, because he, he thinks actually there's a terror in North America as well in the 1790s. And he blames Washington foolishly. Obviously, he blames him for being locked up in, the, in, in prison in France for uh, a year. And then he comes out and he writes The Age of Reason. And he says, actually, the only option for the world is the French Revolution because the American Revolution has utterly failed because it's also had its own terror. It's also likely to go to war, the XYZ affair in the, in the late 90s, etc. So it remains so different to Europe that it can't be a model for Europeans. But then politics being based on land, the old notions of classical republicanism, you know, obviously leads to a justification of slavery as well, then of chattel slavery, then it's, dis it's so distinctive. But the real parallel for me with the present is that in these times that, that I'm talking about, the notion of an individual liquidizing their assets and crossing borders while playing a role in the high politics of the state that's something that you've got to be so frightened of. Obviously, there have been people like that, you know, the fuggers and, and bankers who fund you, but you bribe them, you know, you give them mines in the Tyrol or you, you silver mines, you, you bribe them. You don't allow them to be involved in your high politics. And I think the thing that, that actually worries me even more about the United States in the present is this notion that individuals are so able with enormous uh, wealth to to cross borders to be involved in politics and then not pay the price not not be citizens or subjects in the old way and the other thing is somebody who lived right through the french revolution jean baptiste say that I, I used to used to work on he was a republican to the end of his days lives until 1832 always hates britain but he lived through all the turmoil of the French Revolution and ultimately remains a Republican. And he thinks there's a version of the French Revolution that could have been made right. He says the only lesson of the French Revolution was moderate wealth, that you can only have stable politics if you have moderate wealth. And if you go through times when you have excessive wealth, which he associates with, with the Britain of the early 19th century, he says you're always going to have political crisis. But there is a parallel in we don't know where to go. You know, the big ideologies, liberalism, socialism, we can't rely on them anymore. The, they don't have the punch that they had in the, in the 19th or 20th centuries. There is a direct parallel with the end of enlightenment when every political ideology seems to have failed. And when everything seems to have failed, what do you do? And obviously, it always becomes the politics of the unexpected, which is not a prophecy. But it's it's likely to come about, isn't it? As as you've already said, David, unintended consequences, I suppose. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit hesitant because I feel like I'll make it even worse and even more depressing for listeners if I add my piece, which is that for me, the as I say, the the biggest problem is not just that there is a parallel in how we think about crisis and the kind of crisis that people are confronting, but also that there is an, a disanalogy in that at least. In the 18th century, there was a faith in reason, and that was something that everyone shared. There was the notion of common sense was invoked, and this idea that there are basic principles of humanity, there's basic principles of logic, there is a sort of common ground in how we think and how we challenge each other, and uh, there's discourse that ultimately can be liberating and enlightening. 
And my worry now is that we have even lost the faith in discourse and even that has become fragmented. And so we don't have reason anymore. We have these different reasons which are ultimately immeasurable and incompatible with each other. And in that sense, it's a return to the kind of fanaticism of the religious wars because it's, you know, we don't have the different gods or perhaps it's we live in a secular age, but there is something to the extent that we think of these different reasons as different gods that govern us. And without even the kind of unifying factor that is the religion as a social, cultural phenomenon. So we're in the extreme relativism. And when you're at that point, it's very hard to think, how can you then bring these discourses in communication with each other? How can you construct criticism? I have a longer story to tell about why that is the case that goes in somewhat different direction from what Richard is saying, which is more about the effects of ideology and false consciousness and what happens when certain uh, market patterns become also patterns of thought. And uh, But that's for sort of longer discussion. For me, the, the, the depressing point, as I say, is the fact that there is this analogy with that Enlightenment era in that we are at a moment of lack of faith in fundamentals. And so in that sense, we're not just at the end of the Enlightenment, we are in, in an age of anti-Enlightenment. And social media fosters forms of superstition as great as any we've seen before, historically. One thing that I was struck by is we sometimes think we live in a uniquely existentially risky age. You know, this is the age of existential risk because of nuclear war and climate change and the rest of it. And obviously, these risks are different. But my God, the late 18th century to the people living through it felt like an age of existential risk. They really were thinking that they, you know, they couldn't imagine what lay beyond. And that's one of the things that paralyzes the political imagination then as now, that if you can't see from here to there and you can't see what gets you, what is the bridge? You're just stuck on this side of this chasm and you're just sort of looking over the edge and then pulling back. Politics is really difficult. But there is something on the other side, you know, as it were, there was a 19th century and there probably will be a 22nd century, even though it's hard to imagine, there will be a second half of the 21st century. And there is something, there's something very sobering about your story, Richard, but I actually didn't find it entirely pessimistic because what it reminded me is that there is always a future. I mean, that, that might sound weird, but it's, a, you know, the end of enlightenment is also the beginning of the future. That's a kind of religious sentence, though, David. There is always a future. It's just, it's, uh, <laughs> it requires a kind of religious faith in the in humanity that I don't think if you're, you're taking seriously the Enlightenment is also about doubting that. I mean, there there may be a future, but there may not be a future. It depends. It depends what happens, and it depends on what we do. Right, but that's why I say it's it's an ironic lesson of the end of enlightenment. I'm not saying it's an enlightenment lesson. It's one of the things that comes out of the end of enlightenment. That the end of enlightenment reminds us there's a future. So maybe it is a semi-religious. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I don't even know what I think. I just know that I didn't feel totally gloomy at the end of the story. I mean, I agree. I agree that reason uh, reason requires a kind of faith in it, and uh, and then the question is what distinguishes that faith from religious faith. And I think some of the story that Richard tells is exactly about that, actually, about what happens when this faith in reason becomes itself fanatic somehow. And I still want to distinguish between fanaticism and enthusiasm, because I think enthusiasm is a good thing if it's uh, if you get to it the right way. And if you think about it uh, in, in along the lines of what some of these authors that I've been mentioning thought, which is it doesn't precede action, but it can follow, you know, Kant defined it as the idea of the good with effect, 
which I think is a, is a nice definition of a kind of benign concept of enthusiasm, which is you have a moral principle. And then if that moral principle motivates you, you can be enthusiastic and there's nothing wrong with it. The problem is when the enthusiasm becomes the foundation of action. But yeah, with, maybe that's a more optimistic way of thinking about how you know we need an idea of reason and an idea of duty and of what needs to be done. And then we can be enthusiastic. We can become enthusiastic. Richard, you get the last word. Well, I was just going to say that in a sense, the positive element of the story is that Britain is perceived to be a model, a model of a free state, free states spread everywhere. You could say so to mercantile systems. That's always been the downside. But, you know, if you read the first 20 pages of, of Hayek's Road to Serfdom, what does he blame ultimately for the, the wars of the, of the 20th century and, and later for the Holocaust? It's the turn away from British culture. You know, he says the disaster is the spread of German ideas and the fact that German ideas themselves were infected by French culture. And all of these, these figures, at the, so many of the figures at the end of the Second World War, they look back on their own European past and they're looking for forces that will sustain a new enlightenment. And often they're figures who reject European history, you know, Popper blaming uh, Plato, Hegel and Marx, Talmont attacking Rousseau and the French revolutionaries. But they're all Anglophiles and they think there's something in 19th century Britain that they do so remarkably well that British moderation, the avoidance of revolutions and excess, which is itself moderation, is the very definition of enlightenment. They think that something happened positively that you need to go back to, but they know you have to go back to it in conditions where Britain is no longer a power, it's no longer culturally supreme, the United States is the, the model free state now, and you have to somehow turn British moderation or foster it in completely different conditions. But that's obviously the story of the, the later 20th century. But for me, the fact is that the British in the 19th century managed to restore a version of enlightenment, contested as it always is. Richard Watmore's book is called The End of Enlightenment, Empire, Commerce, Crisis. It is a brilliant and revelatory book about the history of ideas. Richard, Leia and I are going to do a series about the Enlightenment, the arguments for it, the arguments against it, its legacy today. We'll be recording that later this year. Before then, we've got a whole host of series coming up on Past, Present, Future, including in March, I'm going to be talking to Gary Gerstel about the history of the ideas behind American elections from 1800 to the present day, the really important elections the ideas that shaped them, the ideas that came out of them. Other series we've got coming up. I'm going to be talking to John Lanchester about the history of bad ideas. Leah Ippi and I are going to be doing a history of freedom. And next, I'm going to be doing the new series in the history of ideas in which I'm going to be talking about the great political fictions, novels and plays, from Coriolanus to Hamilton. I do hope you can join us for all of those. We will be putting these out as series. So there will be two episodes a week, starting in February, and lots of other things coming too. We will let you know about all of that. And if you want to find out more, just follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. <laughs>